Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Random History Podcast. Uh, This time around, we're going to discuss the American Expeditionary Force of North Russia, also known as the Polar Bear Expedition. Uh, As always, I look forward to your input. Uh, You can reach me via email, Twitter, or our website, randomhistorypodcast.com. Love to hear your feedback, and I can't wait to hear back from you. Also, love to hear some suggestions for future episodes. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy. We take sponsors to our podcast very seriously. And while there's a lot of big name options out there, there's currently none for us. I mean, heck, we even tried dollar doorknobs and they refused to pick us up. But in the meantime though, a local business stepped up to the plate and decided to sponsor us on episode one and forward. So I'd like to introduce to you our sponsor, Ned's Authentic Chinese Food and Buffet. They decided to sponsor us, so we can't thank them enough, and we strongly encourage our listeners to patron our sponsor. They can be found at 622 West American Way in Chicago, or online at nedschinese.com. So please, visit our sponsor and enjoy. And remember, when you think authentic Chinese food, think Ned's. What we're going to cover is the American Expeditionary Force in North Russia, a.k.a. the Polar Bear Expedition. This is not the Siberian campaign, but the larger campaign that took place in Arkhangelsk, Russia. Now, you'll also notice how I just probably slaughtered the name of that city. Um, So you're going to see me, because I'm not a native Russian speaker, use a lot of Anglicanized um, words. So Archangel is kind of how I'm going to more commonly refer to that. But native Russian speakers, please um, let me know how to say this stuff right, and I'll do my best to correct it. Also, due to the source material I have, this is going to be from the American perspective primarily. All of the primary source material I have is from Americans or those who later became American citizens. The part about or later became an American citizen is an important note. The primary reason I know about this obscure campaign is because my propapus, my great-grandfather, served in this campaign. Him and I had spoke many times about his experience in the war and his life in general before his passing. May his memory be eternal. Here I am trying to give historical context and narrative about a subject, and as any person, I'm human, meaning I have lived with certain life experiences, education, and other background matters that influence my thinking. I think it's important for you, the listener, to know a little bit about me. Certainly not because I'm interesting or anything, but rather because if you know who I am, you may be able to understand and even detect some of my unintended biases I may have. I would rather put this up front, so you know what lens I am attempting to view the data I have. In history, we use primary sources whenever we can. That is, a primary source is a source that's contemporaneous to the event. Whenever we can do that, we can remove as many layers of bias as possible. History for me, and I hope for you, is not something that lays dead on a page. The joy of history is reading between the lines. The why someone wrote what they did and why they wanted us to know that detail or why they wanted us to know that detail in the way they wrote it is where history comes to life. That's the interesting part. So if, for example, we read a book written last year on the history of the Americas prior to 1492, we know that the author has likely took what little primary source information we have, and then many sources that later then reinterpreted that data and gave thoughts and opinions 
And those thoughts and opinions from that author likely influenced other authors on the subject and so on. In science, that's often called standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, unfortunately, with history, because we're working with data from humans, we tend to find that there's a lot of bias in it. So what school of thought may seem correct now may later fall out of favor. We're going to have an example of that a, a little later on in one of the causes of World War I. But when we work from primary source materials directly, we can confront the bias that the contemporary had, which is much easier. Still, even then, those biases can be difficult to spot. For example, if I read the diary of an officer of this expedition and compare the same day's entry to that of a soldier he was commanding, the reflection on the day might be quite different. Also, because these are American diaries of the period, I may be confronted with other biases, such as race or nationality. Remember, just because you're an American, in this time period especially, didn't mean you were born in the U.S. So for these reasons, I want to give you a snapshot of who I am so you know the lens in which I view the world. My name is Ryan Van Dyke, and at the start of this podcast, I am 38 years old, recently moved to Illinois from Michigan three years ago for a job transfer. I am the oldest of four children. I am white and a male. I grew up in a modest or lower middle class household, and I am now socially middle class. I was married for 17 years, and I have two children, a 19-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son. I have a BA in business and an MBA. By trade, I manage facilities in the chemical industry. I am primarily of Greek and German descent. My religion is Greek Orthodox. Now, while I would normally hesitate to state my religion, it does play heavily in the historical context, uh, especially for myself and my propapus whose transcript of an interview with the university I'm using as one of my primary sources. Also, American English is my primary language, though I will slaughter it just the same as when I attempt to speak Russian. And I also speak restaurant Greek. Restaurant Greek, for those of you who are unaware, is mostly curse words and the names of Greek dishes. But everyone has to start somewhere, right? This is also a good time to mention some of the things I do not intend to cover in this podcast. This is not a podcast covering the European theater or any theater of war in real detail other than the AEF in North Russia. This is not because I don't think it's amazing history or there's some just amazing stories to tell. It's just that I have to tip my hat to other podcasters in that regard. Dan Carlin did an absolutely terrific job, well, as he always does, with his Blueprint for Armageddon series on his podcast, Hardcore History. I mean, seriously, if you want to hear in detail about the Western Front in World War I, you got to check out that podcast. I mean, not before, of course, you completely finish this podcast and are only waiting for me to, you know, issue new episodes, then totally check out his podcast. Anyhow, I'm also not going to be getting into the World War I German military versus the World War II German military debate, as Dan Carlin also covered this in his Hardcore History Addendum podcast. Spoiler alert, World War I German military kicks the snot out of World War II German military and discipline and leadership 99 out of 100 times. The second World War German military leadership and structure was little more than a shell of its first World War I counterpart. Sorry, I couldn't help myself on that one, but I swear, end rant. So as our events take place in Russia, I will not be diving into the schools of communist thought or communist ideals. 
Mike Duncan has hit that out of the park in his Revolutions podcast. The same Mike Duncan of the History of Rome fame. I mean, seriously, if you're a history fan, you got to check out Mike Duncan and uh, Dan Carlin. I mean, just amazing stuff. Again, though, when you don't have episodes from me, right? Anyhow, so now that we know what we'll be covering and not, how about some context? Pre-World War I, Europe was a strange place compared to today. The world powers all resided there. With Spain being picked off its great power status at the end of the 19th century by some renegade upstart called the United States, while the American century, quote-unquote, had begun, no one in the world knew it yet. The great powers were the United Kingdom and its possessions, they being the great naval power and France being the great land power. Germany was a relatively new nation, but it was still riding high in its trouncing of France in 1870-71 that actually ended in the Prussians uniting the German home region and forming, well, Germany. The sting of the Prussian military parade in Paris of February 1871 and, of course, the 5 billion franc indemnity paid to Germany, Bismarck came to that total by saying that's what Napoleon had demanded of Prussia prior. Wow. You see this war indemnity thing? It's not that easy to forget. And it makes people upset for generations. I mean, if you were France and you beat Germany in the next go around, you wouldn't continue the cycle and ask for a crazy war indemnity, would you? That couldn't have like implications that would cause another go around that would be labeled as another world war, could it? You see that foreshadowing right there? Clever, right? So yeah, Germany was another of the great powers. Russia, though, at this point was seen as a backward empire, much like the Ottomans. The thing about Russia, though, is that it had inexhaustible manpower. So they were a force to be reckoned with. Both world wars proved this point, unfortunately, if you were a Russian peasant. Lastly, we have the Ottoman Empire. They were once going to march through and conquer all of Europe just a few hundred years prior. But now they were widely seen as the sick man of Europe. It was widely believed that one solid military kick and the whole rotten structure would come blah, 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 you know. Germany, though, they saw it differently. At this time, the Muslim world was united under the caliphate, and the caliphate resided in the Ottoman Empire. So there was this idea then that the Muslim caliphate could call jihad, and if they did that, a lot of the British possessions were Muslim. So this would mean that the British would then have to send their soldiers to their colonies to put down uprisings, which would mean that those soldiers were not available on the front. And also that you couldn't draw from the manpower of those colonies to support the mother country. So that'd be pretty neat, right? So you can kind of see that's part of the German uh, war plan. Now, as an American of Greek descent, I have a lot to say about the Ottoman Empire, but that is part of my bias. What I will say, though, is that this backward empire had new leadership history would call the Young Turks. Loans were secured primarily from France and nearly transferred uh, as the empire was going to start modernizing, joining the Industrial Revolution, laying new railroads under a national plan and all kinds of neat stuff. Then the war happened. And the empire, it was parted out. Had it not happened, it's conceivable they would be the, or at least a, preeminent power of the world today with their vast oil and other natural resource wealth. But the war did happen. The Middle East went to hell, well, further into hell, and it still is not recovered. In the history books, they speak a lot about secret alliances that led to this war, though that thought has recently fallen out of favor, and it seems to have more served as an excuse for the horrors that were about to unfold. 
France and Russia, they were allies. Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire were allies. Those two were allies dating back even prior to the Napoleonic Wars. France was going to back Russia if there was a war. Germany was going to back their Germanic brethren of Austria. Still, though, how did the assassination of a, of a crown prince, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, by some Serbians start this powder keg? To an Eastern European in those days, it's simple. The Serbians are Orthodox Christians, and the Russians, well, they're not just Orthodox Christians. Moscow is the third Rome. After the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Roman Empire fell. To those who are not history nuts or just learning, the empire we call the Byzantine Empire today was the Eastern Roman Empire. They marched for the Senate and people of Rome, quote-unquote, until May of 1453 when Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks. The Western Roman Empire fell in 476 AD, but that was just one half of the empire. Remember from history class, Diocletian dividing the Roman Empire into East and West? Anyway... Importantly, there are five primary patriarchates from which Christian churches can come from or be ruled to be considered to have apostolic succession. Now, of course, this is well before Protestantism and all those sort of things, the Church of England and all that. So bear that in mind. The Eastern Roman Empire had four of these patriarchates, and the Bishop of Rome was the other one. So after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, there was a point in time when the Patriarch of Rome and the Patriarch of Constantinople ended up excommunicating each other. This was called the quote-unquote Great Schism. Um, that's when that occurred, which, by the way, might in itself be another really good podcast. Those under the Patriarchy of Rome, they ended up calling themselves Catholic, which in Greek is means universal or global. Those in the still-standing Roman Empire that we now call the Byzantine called themselves Orthodox, or in Greek, that means right. So the people of Russia were converted to Christianity by Orthodox monks, so they became Orthodox Christians. After the fall of Constantinople in 1453, this left Russia the only standing Orthodox empire. So they kind of fashioned themselves the defender of the faith, and Moscow then is the third Rome. This is why the emperor of Russia's title was Tsar, or Caesar. Pretty clever, right? That was a long way to get there, but yes, Tsar Nicholas of the Russian Empire was going to support the peoples under his protection in the Balkans. Austria-Hungary had the right to administer Bosnia under the 1878 Treaty of Berlin for the Ottomans. Bosnian Serbs were not pleased with this arrangement and were seditious, just like they were to the Ottomans. The attack, though, may have been planned by members of the Serbian government, or at least a rebel group named the Black Hand. Ominous, right? Of course, the murder of an heir apparent required a response. There was unrest that broke out by the Serbs within Austria-Hungary immediately after the assassination. Interestingly, Serbia warned Austria-Hungary and other nations about the plot to assassinate the Archduke. Once successful, that seemed to have mattered little. The assassination occurs on June 28th, and on July 6th, Germany tells the Austro-Hungarian ambassador that they have Germany's unconditional support. This is what becomes known to history as the blank check. This is what turned a regional dispute into a continental dispute and a worldwide dispute. Many believe that Austria felt with Germany's backing, Russia would not intervene. Perhaps unknown to them was that France's prime minister told the Tsar to oppose any Austrian measures against Serbia. I mean, the French prime minister was actually in Russia 
for a state visit that was previously planned. So then Russia tells Germany on the 21st of July that they will not tolerate uh, Austrian threats or military action against Serbia. Yet on July 23rd, Austria tells Serbia its demands that intentionally cannot be accepted and that they have 48 hours to comply. They do not. And the rest, as they say, is history. The last miscalculation of note, though, is that the UK would stay out of the war. The UK did not have a reason to enter the war. They did not have a secret treaty. Let's be honest, they were friendly with France and Russia, and they did not like this rising power called Germany. They did not have a legal reason to join the war, nor did they have a desperate need to do so. The UK did declare war, though, because of this clause in the Treaty of London signed in 1838 that stated the UK would support Belgium's neutrality. The intention of this treaty, though, didn't have anything to do with German armies. But words on this quote-unquote scrap of paper meant the UK was legally compelled to war. With all of this said, it was in the strategic interest of the UK to join the war. After all, this is summed up well by Ayer Crow from the British Foreign Office. Should the war come and England stand aside, one of two things must happen. Either Germany and Austria win, crush France and humiliate Russia. What will be the position of a friendless England? Or France and Russia win. What would be their attitude towards England? What about India and the Mediterranean? So there you have it. World War I has begun. Next time, we'll take a quick moment to discuss the Eastern and Western Fronts, the situation in Russia, and why the British felt the need to intervene in Russia, and what the hell America was even doing. The U.S. joining the war, and then getting into the meat and potatoes of why you're listening. Or at least I hope you're still listening. The American Expeditionary Force of North Russia, also known as the Polar Bear Expedition.